ask you, how many times have you gotten into something that you thought was going to be easy or rewarding or fulfilling only to get into it and realize that you were in up to your elbows? That it wasn't as easy as you thought it was going to be? Or that maybe you'd be better off if you hadn't tried it in the first place? We've all been there. What describes this for you? Is it college, your career, adulthood, retirement, marriage or parenthood? Don't answer if it is. <laughs> is it that thing that would take you 15 minutes to do and you told your wife you would do and you still haven't done it and it's been six months? Guilty. <laughs> Can I get an amen from my wife? But in response to that, have you all seen or heard of the concept of the life hack? If you scroll on the internet for any amount of time, you'll see these short, helpful videos that will pop up from time to time that are known as life hacks. And these are usually about things that we all do commonly or conventionally, but someone else has figured out a clever or convenient way and an easy way to do it and make our lives easier. So for instance, you can take a soda can, let's say you pop it open and you wanna drink it, but you wanna drink it with a straw, you can turn the tab around and stick the straw through the hole and use that as a straw holder. Or if you want to hang a picture, you're not quite sure about your measurements to how, where you wanna put your nails in the wall, you can take a piece of tape and you can place it on the back of the picture frame over the holes. You can poke holes in the tape and then take it off and put it on the wall and there you have marked your nail holes. And then when you go to nail that in, let's say you have those really tiny tack nails that are about the width of your finger and you don't wanna smash your finger with the hammer as you're hammering those nails in the wall, you can grab a clothespin and you can hold it with that and nail it into the wall. That was one I could have used about three weeks ago. <laughs> so those are life hacks, and they are to make our lives easier, to make tasks in our life easier. And today I'd like to suggest that today's passage in John chapter 2 can serve somewhat as a Bible hack. That if you want to understand and make sense of what's happening in the Bible and how it applies to you, then all you need to do is have a firmer grasp of today's passage. It's the one where Jesus turns the water into wine. But before we get there, I have a little bit also of a sermon hack to give you. If you're watching from home, we're going to be finishing today's time together with a time of communion. So I ask you to just turn your TV up a little bit and run into your pantry or refrigerator and, and get whatever you have. If it's juice and it's bread or it's coffee and crackers, or if you took the coronation of King Charles a little too seriously yesterday, tea and scones, <laughs> you know who you are. I invite you to go grab that real quick. Let's read together from John chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that are used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The Bible calls this the first of the signs that Jesus would do. It's a really important part of the passage. So how does this passage relate to us understanding what the Bible's all about? How does it relate to it being a Bible hack or a small tweak and how we can comprehend the Bible better and what it is saying, and more importantly, what, is, what it is saying to us. Well, the setting and the happenings at this miracle are a couple of the things that can clue us in. And if we look into the Bible, let's look at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, you see that God's goal is to unify heaven and earth, to bring God and humankind back together the way it was before Adam and Eve sinned. That's the goal. And the metaphor used in the Bible to describe that is a wedding. Weddings are used this way in the, in the Bible to describe this union of God and mankind, the culmination of God's work in reestablishing and restoring his kingdom through his creation. And similarly with that, with the metaphor of the wedding, wine often goes hand in hand with this as a symbolic image, as a way to represent the richness of God's kingdom. So God plans to reunify heaven and earth. The metaphor for that is a wedding. And as we read the Bible between the beginning and the end, we see that the hope for this begins to run out. We run out of wine, so to speak. So again, by doing this, when and where he does, Jesus is offering a very public and symbolic commentary on who he is and what he offers to us. Malcolm Gladwell talks about this idea or a similar idea of the life hack when he wrote his book, The Tipping Point. Similarly to how life hacks are simple or clever ways to make things easier, The Tipping Point was about how massive changes to an organization or a movement could be accomplished not through massive overhauls, by simply, but simply by doing small tweaks. So here's an example of how that works. In the 1930s, just south of Boston, Massachusetts, there was an inn owner named Ruth Wakefield and her husband, Kenneth, and they ran the inn. They were well known for their inn. She was well known. She was a culinary artist, and she was well known for her food and for her desserts. And one day, she wanted to experiment a little with the ingredients that she had and the recipes that she had. And she got the bright, bright idea to mix in some chocolate to her dessert. She was thinking the chocolate would melt and spread all throughout the dessert and it would become a chocolate dessert. What happened instead was that the chocolate softened, but it kept 
its shape. It maintained its shape while the rest of the dessert cooked around it. Well, she served it anyway, and it was an instant hit. So instant, in fact, that she would go on to be featured on the nationally known radio show, The Betty Crocker Show. She would eventually be contacted also by a man named Andrew Nesley to take her recipe developed at her Toll House Inn and put it on his packages of chocolate. That's a small tweak, and it was through that small tweak, or what today we might call a life hack, that Ruth Wakefield took not baker's chocolate as she normally would have, but semi-sweet chocolate morsels, and gave us what I think is the greatest dessert known to mankind, (laughs) chocolate chip cookies. So again, I think a small tweak in how we understand the Bible can help us understand this story better in John chapter 2. If you can understand what's happening in the Bible, you can understand what's happening when Jesus turns the water into wine. And if you can understand what's happening when Jesus turns the water into wine, then you can understand what's happening in the Bible. Have you ever had your hopes dashed? Because that's where we are at this point in the story. Maybe there was a sports team that you played on or you followed that had a really promising season that ended in an upset. Maybe you were up for a job or two or more or a promotion and you kept getting the notification that though you're tremendously qualified, we're going with another candidate. You're always the bridesmaid, but you're never the bride. Or maybe there's a project you're working on at work and it's just not turning out the way that you'd hoped. There was another example of that, a man named Spencer who was working on this adhesive that he was trying to design that he wanted or thought would be a super strong adhesive that would be reusable. You could use it on all kinds of things and it would be useful at work or in the home. And he just couldn't get it to work. The more he would experiment with it, the more he would do different versions of it, the weaker and weaker it got. It was a remarkably weak adhesive, but it was reusable. And he had a friend, a coworker named Arthur Fry. Arthur Fry sung in his church choir, and one day when he was at church, he wasn't listening to the sermon. <laughs> he, was, he was bored by the sermon, and he looked down at his hymnal and all the papers that he kept in there and the bookmarks, and he would always get frustrated because they would always fall out and he would always lose his place. And so this, during this remarkably boring sermon, he got the bright idea. What if I use my coworker's adhesive on my bookmarks? Well, the company they worked for was named 3M. You may have heard of it. And that was the birth of what we know as post-it notes. So choir, you can get a pass on not paying attention if you do something that benefits all of humanity. <laughs> We've all been there when something's just not working out. And do you remember that feeling? When the thing that you've been building or stashing your hope in just collapses. This couple at this wedding has run out of wine. And since wedding celebrations in those days were something that involved the whole community and usually lasted several days or sometimes up to a week, running out of wine this early in the celebration would have been a massive embarrassment. At this point in the story, in John chapter 2, the party is over. 
And we all know this sentiment. It is the soundtrack of our lives to some degree or another. If you're younger than me, you might sense this feeling in some of the songs you might know, how quickly life is moves on, life changes, hopes are dashed. You might hear that in the songs like See You Again by Wiz Khalifa or Night Changes by One Direction. Or if you're my age, you might be familiar with the songs that mark the great transitions in our lives like Closing Time by Simisonic or Good Riddance by Green Day. Or if you're older than me, like Travis's age, (laughs) you might remember the old Willie Nelson song Turn out the lights, the party's over. In my head, I went like right up to the deadline of if I was gonna actually sing that line or not. (laughs) I did like the slightly off-key Don Meredith version, if you know that reference. But that's all the singing you're gonna get from me. I'm I'm not Travis. However, I am keenly aware that Kristen is speaking next week and Tim is later this month and Holly's next month, so I am trying to set a precedent for them. Also, don't turn out the lights because the sermon's not over yet. But this song, Turn Out the Lights, The Party's Over, it captures this idea, this sentiment. And whatever your favorite song, whether it's a goodbye or graduation song, whatever your favorite song about that topic is, it's a universal sentiment in our society. We all feel it. We all sense it. It's a longing or a lamenting for what was or what could have been. And this is the point at which we are here with this couple in John chapter two. And it's the part their extended family is in as well. And it's the point at which we are in the entire Bible and the overarching story of the Bible, this is where we are. And not only does Jesus come to the rescue of the couple whose wine has run out, but he also does this for us. So again, a small tweak in our understanding of the Bible to better see this. How do we, how does this work? What does this look like? Well, there's two wrong ways to read a book, including the Bible. One is to hold it too far away to where you can't make out the words. But the other wrong way is to hold it too close where you can only make out one word at a time. I'm afraid this is the way we sometimes look at our our Bible or we approach our Bible. It can be confusing, it can be daunting, it can feel like we're in up to our elbows, so we keep it kind of far away. Or we get really into it and we study it word for word, which, hear me out, that's not a bad thing. I like word for word studies, but there's a danger in them that you can get so caught up in them that you can see it as simply a series of really important stories or a series of really important words, and you can miss those stories and those words' contribution to the greater story that it's telling. So a small tweak is just to hold it a little bit further away, to take in what each story and each word is saying and the overarching story. And if we do that, we'll begin to see that the story the Bible is telling is a story that I think our very own lives are also telling. It's a story that is telling the lives of the people of Israel, the people of God, the people of the church, and us even today. So here's how, and I'll encourage you to buckle in. We're gonna take a really quick whirlwind tour of the Bible here over the next couple of minutes. But very early in the Bible, you see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's a a well-known story. 
a lot of ink has been spilled over the story, but for, for everything that's been written about it, it serves a very primary purpose and a very narrative purpose in the storyline of the Bible, and that is this. It's a template of inhumanity, of people at their worst, that they are willing as a city and as a society to let their passions get the best of them, to sacrifice innocent people for their own pleasure or comfort or safety, and then to leave them for dead. And this is a template of inhumanity. It's a template that is followed by the other societies that we see in the Bible, the empires of Egypt and Babylon and Persia and onto Rome. And this template of inhumanity is a mirror by which the people of God are supposed to judge themselves against as they go along. Now, if you read the Bible too close, you'll miss this. And if you don't read it at all, you'll miss it as well. But if you hold it just right, you'll see a pattern emerge, a pattern that follows this template of humans being their worst. And as we read along, we'll see that some of the worst perpetrators are the people of God. So you'll see them begin, beginning in the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, they begin to fight battles. And that all culminates in this point at the end of the book of Judges where you see the people of Israel and a priest, a priest of Israel, do almost the very same thing that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are doing. They let their passions get the best of them. They sacrifice an innocent person for their own pleasure or comfort or safety, and then they leave them for dead. So the author of Judges tells us the people just did whatever they wanted to do because they didn't have a king, and he directs our hope then to a king. And then we meet our greatest king, the King David, only to see him do the same thing. In the story of David and Bathsheba, he lets his passions get the best of him. He sacrifices an innocent person for his own pleasure or comfort or safety, and he leaves him for dead. So our attention turns not to the bureaucracy and not to the battles, but to the building, the temple, in the middle of which is the Holy of Holies, the place where heaven and earth meet. Only for the prophets to then come along and tell them that they themselves are doing the very same thing. They're being humans at their worst. This starts with the prophet Isaiah, the very first prophet. In his first chapter, he says this about God's people. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord and they have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. And then speaking to his people, God himself says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. God calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. He himself compares them to the template of inhumanity. And he goes on to tell them how much he despises their heartless, meaningless offerings. And then he says, see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. They've let their passions get the best of them. God says they do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. They sacrifice innocent people for their own pleasure or comfort or safety. God says she was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. They leave people for dead. All just in the first chapter of Isaiah. 
And the point's not to glorify these acts. It's not to prescribe them. It's not even to say that they're okay. It's simply to describe them. And for us to make a connection that if Sodom and Gomorrah is the template, then for all of their efforts to not be like the template of inhumanity, for all their efforts to not be people at their worst, the battles, the bureaucracies, and the buildings of God's people have failed them. And it's at this time that the Babylonian Empire rises to power. It comes and crushes the remaining people of God and carries them off into exile. And they wind up right back where they started in Babylon, which is where Abraham was when he left following the call of God. They are back at square one. And his plan to reunite heaven and earth, if you read through the Old Testament, you get to the end, and this is where it ends. It ends with a cliffhanger. Leaves you wondering, is there a prophet or a priest or a king who's going to come along who can lead us to the marriage between God and humanity? And into that void steps, not Babylon, but a baby. But even with this baby, we let our passions get the best of us. We abandon him both at his birth and at his death and we leave him for dead on the cross. But however, he turns out to be the one who can overcome even the worst that humanity can throw at him. So what about you? Have you done that? He says, Father, forgive them. Have you ever felt like that? Like the priest's concubine or like Uriah or like the widows and the orphan in Isaiah? Have you ever felt thrown to the, woods, to the wolves? Have you ever felt left for dead? So has he. And he comes and he joins us in that. And he doesn't come to do that to us. He comes and allows, that, allows us to do that to him. And that's how he defeats it. Not by overpowering humans at their worst, but by showing that humans at their worst are no match for him, that they can't keep him down, and they can't keep him in the grave, which means they can't do that to you either. And that is the story that all the other stories in the Bible are crying out to us. And that is the story of the Bible. That is the story that the wedding in Cana is telling us. But not only is it the Bible's story, I would contend that it is also each of our story. Have we placed our hopes in the battles that we fight? in the kings that we crown, in the things that we build, in the promise of some kingdom of this world and the wine that it offers. If that's not the story you have lived, I would bet it's the story you're living. And if it's not the story that you're living, I would bet it's the story that you will live at some point in time. The story of the Bible is a story to us that screams in the end, these things will not work. Because there's always another fight to be won, right? Always another king to crown, always another thing to build. Those bottles will run dry. And while there may be small victories, in the end, there will be nothing about them to celebrate. Like a wedding that has run out of wine. But with this story in John chapter two, Jesus is saying that the place we all long for, 
the way that we were meant to live, the wine that marks the richness of the unification of God and humanity. That can be found in him and in him alone. And this story then becomes the invitation to the final wedding that the Bible talks about in Revelation. But before he gets there, there was one more pivotal scene in the Bible where Jesus talks about wine. And it's at what we call the Lord's Supper, but what he would have called Passover, a, sa- a sacred meal. And traditionally, the sacred Passover meal involved drinking four cups of wine, the last of which is called the cup of praise, which is consumed in gratefulness of, God's, of God re- reuniting his people to himself. But interestingly enough, on that night, Jesus doesn't drink from that cup. Instead, he holds it up and he says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Have you ever been to a wedding or a celebration of some kind where someone has gotten up to deliver a toast? Typically, that will urge everyone around to grab a glass because there is something that is about to be worthy of celebrating. And they wait until everyone who wants to has grabbed one. For Jesus to pause from the celebration of Passover, the celebration of God's deliverance, and not to drink from the fourth cup is essentially for him to say, it's not over yet. Everybody gather around. There is something that is about to be worth celebrating. We are still here. He hasn't had that fourth cup of wine yet. He's still calling us to gather around. And if you haven't heeded his call to join him, there's still room, there's still time. And you can do that with us now. We're about to take communion. Our deacons will come forward and we'll distribute the plates of communion. If you follow Jesus, the call of communion is a call to remember this and to look forward in anticipation of the day when we will celebrate it together with Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the call of communion is a call to consider all of this, to consider how this passage might speak to your life and consider Jesus' offer of trusting in him. For everyone who takes communion, it's about admitting that our cups of wine, our fights, our kings, our accomplishments will run dry, and his cup is the cup of choice wine in which new life is found and unity in God's kingdom. As we take communion this morning, I wanna be sure to let you know that you don't have to be a Baptist. You don't even have to be a member of First Baptist to take communion with us. You just have to feel your heart drawn to following Jesus. So if that describes you, I invite you to take communion with us this morning. If it's your first time taking communion and you would like a commemorative olive cup, we have those. I'm not sure where that, I think the table's off to the side or in the back, but we can do that with you as well. Also, I wanna offer you, right before we do communion, I wanna offer you one communion hack. You'll see the plate go by, you'll grab one cup, it'll actually be two cups stacked together. The bottom cup will have your bread, the top cup will have your juice, so make sure you do that. Don't wait for another one to come by, and then I'll lead you through the taking of communion once everybody has been served.